You're listening to the ABC Music Talk podcast, the show for anyone interested in the music industry. This is the second and final part of the episode about the founder of Triple J Vinyl, a new UK-based second-hand record shop and now record club. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to that to get an idea of what is to come or just sit back and listen to the completion of the journey. But before you go, don't forget to go rotate your videos. Rota is for artists, managers, labels or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rota makes it fast, easy and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rota logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. Wonderful. Okay, so let's change tack slightly. Um, I want to dive into your career, if that's okay. So the first job was at an A&R department at a record company. That must have felt like winning the lottery at the time. I mean, how did that come about? Oh, I mean, I think uh, all I just knew was I was a music obsessive. All I knew was a music obsessive. It, it just felt right. And I think I, because it didn't, I didn't start as, oh, you're an A&R guy. It, it started as do the press packs, do the photocopy and send out the post. So it never felt like, well, I'm an A&R guy. It was like, I, I did all those menial jobs that you do at record labels and then I went to loads of gigs and I'd tell someone at work who I saw um, if I thought they were good or not. How did you get into the, the, the assistant job in the first place? You wrote letters. It, that was, OK. Yeah, wrote letters for work experience placements and then when you were there, you are thinking, I'm not going to go. I'm going to show them in these two weeks that I am going to be a huge asset to their company. That's a lie. I didn't sit there and think that. I think what happened is that I went in there and I showed them my enthusiasm for music and they're like, OK, can you stay on for a while longer? So um, I did nine months at a little heavy metal record label called Music for Nations, just one day a week. And then from that, I wrote letters and I got a job at Mushroom Records with Corda Marshall um, and Max Lusado and Stuart Camp, manager of Ed Sheeran, who was one of the marketing managers at Infectious, which was part of the Mushroom Group. And uh, I, I, I joined just as they were making a lot of redundancies uh, so I feel I just lucked out because they're like, OK, we've got rid of all these people. We need someone to do some work. Mm-hmm. So I just stayed on cash in hand. I don't know if I should say that. Uh, and made myself, got myself busy, made myself busy. I went to gigs every night. I was still living at home and just spent my night in ca- my nights in Candom when Candom was just a buzz with gigs every night. And it was at this label where you signed some artists that are incredible. Like- the darkness you know I, I still sit a little uneasy and uncomfortable with thinking I signed the darkness and I feel it's because it was just such a, a big team of people that did it sure I played a part in that team I was the first person to see them I was the first person to see them a second third fourth and fifth time and then I eventually managed to bring people down I introduced them to the manager Sue I so yeah I played I, a, a big part I think you can take that oh, I just I still I, I still, I still sit a little I weird. know what you're saying because ultimately these bands are thinking about their next steps right so it, it, a personal relationship is one thing but they have to start thinking about okay if I'm going to go with that record label what is it what is that what is that label going to do with you know, for me, and, and to your point, I know what you're saying. You're saying they came in and they met some other people, right? And they went, yeah, okay, this is this feels like the place that I could take my career. Yeah, okay, thank but, you. But you, <laughs> but, but you signed it. Oh, well, how, I know. That, that's how I. That's how I see it. If anyone says the word sign, I was just think of I didn't sit down there with a bit of paper and give it to them and say sign on this dotted line. That was the lawyer, but 
Uh, yeah, I, pl- I played a part in the team that yeah. signed the, the Darkness. This was all just as the Mushroom was being acquired by Warner Music. Ah, okay. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't told this, but the Darkness turned around to Corder and said, "If Joel isn't guaranteed a job at Warner Music, nice. Um, we're not signing to 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 you." So we then merged with East West, and we remained as East West for a while, and then we changed the name to Atlantic UK, Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when I felt, okay, I'm an A&R guy. And it was really them and Funeral for Friends who were my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, Welsh rock band who I, who I really... Because The Darkness were signed with an album all ready to go. Funeral for a Friend needed to make their records. So that's when I got into the whole world of producing and studios and mixing and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I felt with fun- Funeral for a Friend, I could spend a little bit more time in the studio and say, well, why don't you try this? And why don't you try that? Because mm. they were a very screamy, very heavy band. And um, and I was trying to somewhat polish them up for a major label. And I remember times when I'd go into the studio when the rest of the band were out at the pub or out and change some bits to songs. And then they'd come back and they'd go, what's happened? I said, I've turned it into a hit. <laughs> and you turned it into Busted. But we, they had a, a they had a, a real good run. They a really real good did. Run. Yeah, they really did. Um, and, and wait, so you were actually in the recording studio messing around with mixing desks and yeah, with the producer and... Colin Richardson, right. fantastic rock producer. I never had a, any kind of. I just I, I knew what parts needed to go where. There was a, a particular song of theirs which they demoed, and it was very long and very messy. And I was like, "We're going to chop that bit, chop that bit, chop that bit." Convince the singer to sing a part instead of screaming it, and before you know it, we had their biggest hit. And, and I guess that awareness of uh, song form can only have come from all of your exposure to uh, you know the variety yeah. of different acts that you yeah. listen to as a, a yeah, person. absolutely. And and also being such a big fan of um, different types of music, knowing. Oh, these bands never quite worked because they never knew how to tame their extremities mm-hmm. and thinking if they could just, just cut this and do this and do this and do this, it will, you know, it will still be outside of music, but we could have a little shot of the charts. Just have a little, that little bit of a, you know. And we did, and it was great. And um, I made three records with them um, as an A&R manager. And then I worked with, with Paul Samuels, who's still at Atlantic Records, an incredibly legendary and our man and uh, one of the most biggest advocates and workers for Love Music Hate Racism um, uh, an artist called Get Cape Where Cape Fly which is Sam Duckworth which is one of the best names for a band ever do you know I I guessed I told him I said I've got an idea where you got your name from mm-hmm. and he goes you will never guess okay I said I'm going to guess because I said the language it's written in really reminds me of the computer game magazines that I used to read as a kid and it sounds like a cheat mm-hmm. or like a walkthrough mm-hmm. and it sounds like something from like a Batman game Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly yeah. and it goes oh my god you've guessed it <laughs> did you guess it? I go because we're the same yeah well he's a bit younger than me yeah. but you know we I'm sure we read the same sort of yeah. computer game magazines and he goes that, that's it it came from like a computer games magazine um, he may have just been said that just to appease me I don't no, know I but think um, that sounds very likely but I, uh, I made we made one record. But he, um, it's funny because when I think of Sam, who is now very big on Twitter and a, a big Black Lives Matter advocate, doing a lot of good. It was a big part in the uh, covered Grenfell a lot. I, he's someone I admire so greatly, 
uh, and yet I feel ashamed such a strong word but I, I'm, I'm just regretful we knew each other when I was in my mid to late 20s and I didn't meet him for the first time now because I'm sure we would have a very different relationship because when I speak to him now I always have this apologetic tone for him knowing me at a time when I was not a particularly nice person but why, why, why do you say that? I was drinking a lot I was um, I just wasn't I, I had different priorities in my life and I look back now and realise that some of the conversations we had about music um, and his, what I felt he needed to do for his career was based more on what I thought he needed to and less on what, I th- and less on what he wanted to. And I think it's a big fundamental difference. Mm. I look back now and I'm very regretful of some of the things I said and some of my attitudes. And I truly hope one day I'll be able to tell him this in person. Yeah. He's a an incredibly smart, articulate, um, passionate. He's a man I admire so much. Anyway, so yeah, I I I, I was. Uh, he's just a yeah, and he made an incredible debut record, and um, one I'm very proud of, to have played a small part in. And he made went on to make some more incredible music. Mm. He's an incredibly important artist in the UK. Don't think he gets the full recognition he he deserves. Um, his music, but his activism work is 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 incredible, incredibly inspiring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, and so, so I guess at this point in your career, things are. Do you feel pretty bulletproof? You know, you've signed some incredible acts, commercial successes. You're working in one of the biggest now, one of the biggest music companies in the world, as in it got moved into Atlantic, or became you know became part of Warner. The fact that you were able to, I think, fairly early on in your career, move from that into setting yourself up as a consultant and then having an incredible client list like the Mama Group, Parlophone and Roadrunner. How did you feel at that time, like sort of being able to just sort of be the master of your own destiny in some respect? It was the worst time of my life. It was the worst time of my life. Okay. I, 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 I felt bulletproof up until the moment Atlantic Records let me go. Um, because I was not dissimilar to what I was saying a moment ago with with Sam Duckworth and Get Cape, I wasn't a particularly nice person. I'd let all that sort of sense of those early achievements get to me. I was not so passionate about music anymore. I was just thinking I was just the bee's knees, and I learned some really important lessons very quickly when I got let go from Atlantic because it was not my choice to be um, let go, and I um was confronted by not having a job um, in an industry where reputation is um, key and I felt then I realised that I had not a great reputation and I learned some lessons very fast and I learned even more later on really. I think uh, I managed to get some consultancies, some of them didn't last very long, they look good on a CV but if you look at the small print I was only there for about four or five months. I worked briefly at Mama Group to do some promoting and I hated promoting because that was the very key element of you need to make money. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that was every, yeah. that gnawed at my soul about what music was about. Um, and I was a, it was a, a big learning curve. Um, and I was just doing all bits and pieces. It, I was doing a bit of consulting, a bit of A&R, a bit of management. But then the real next thing that kind of took off was the, the band management because I had a band that finally 
began to get some traction. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that then for a second. So to, to me, the being an A and R manager and being a manager, an artist manager, that they're, they're kind of they're almost like cousins in terms of job roles in some respects. Did, did you feel like that? Did you feel like you could be a better manager because you could understand? how an A&R manager might be looking at the band that you're representing? or you know, Absolutely. Yeah. You, you take your previous skills. And I, and I always say to people, well, I want to be a manager, but I don't know what to do. I say, well, no one knows what to do. But what you do is bring what you know to that band and take care of the other stuff they don't want to do. That's all that managing is. And then you learn as you go along. So I took all my A&R skills. <laughs> A&R skills. But I had an they, idea they, of... They, they are skills. I mean, I, 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 see, I, I have this thing where I don't really... I, to me, A&R's witchcraft. I've said it before on the, on the podcast. Because you, you gave us that example earlier on about going in when the band are down the pub and changing a few things with the, with the producer. That is a skill. That is a skill. It's an undeniable skill. And it has a commercial element to it, right? Because you are thinking about how might radio receive this or how might uh, it, it, it sort of come across on a on a record within the sort of time format that records were, if you like, kind of that's changed a little bit in the digital world. Um, records are shorter these days, it seems, because of streaming. Um, but yeah, no, I think that is a, I think that is a real skill. You're right, and I've belittled it for reasons uh, I, I don't know, but uh, I I just I, I think I think a lot of people in the industry get a little bit like that after a while. Well, I think so much of it is based on luck. So much of it is based on because I could have made those changes and they wouldn't have worked, mm-hmm. but we don't hear that story because it didn't work. <laughs> but we hear this story because that one just happened to work. Success has many fathers. Yeah, failures are orphan. Orphans. I I did bring what I had learned from my experience at a label. I'm, I feel more comfortable saying that actually. Funny, I brought my experience of working at a label and brought it to management, and then just managing a band was the biggest learning curve biggest biggest learning curve because there's all those other elements the live publishing dealing with the label and i think when i look back now i think the challenge i faced was i i worked with i would only worked with one successful band and they were my whole thing and i tried to make it work with some other bands it didn't quite work i'd work with a band and it wouldn't be working but i'd feel a loyalty so i'd stick with it and stick with it and stick with it and then i'd before i knew it i'd Spent 18 months with a band not working, thinking, well, that was a lot of hard work where I could have just gone, this is not working after a couple of months, let's find something else. But I always was, I believed in sticking with something. Let's make it work. We can make it work. Because that's what happened with the Joy Formidable. I managed them for two years with very little success. Well, big commercial success. I took them, I say I took them, I I guided them through a part of their career where we were an unsigned band selling out 1,500 capacity venues in London, we toured America twice, Australia, Japan, all as an unsigned band, throughout Europe as an unsigned band. So that was a lot of work and a lot of um, schedule, a lot of things to schedule just as one person. So, so was all that being funded through things like ticket sales? And... Ticket sales, we would uh, do merchandise. Um, we just, the, the occasional sync, and when a sync would drop, it'd be like, oh my God, finally, you know, mm. we can afford a, to hire a van. Rather than borrowing somebody's car. Rather than, yeah, borrowing a car. But, you know, I I didn't pay myself. Mm-hmm. I was still somehow making money from consultancies here and there. And occasionally a single would come in, I'd have a little bit of money to see me through the next month. And then I think when Atlantic, when we signed to Atlantic Records, Atlantic in the US, we signed to Steve Robofsky, who signed The Strokes and The Kings of Leon. Back in the day, he signed Soundgarden. He worked with Talking Heads. The man is a legend. Wow. Um, when we signed to... 
Atlantic, I think I just, I think I did what a lot of bands did, which was go, oh, and now we can relax. Yeah. And that's really when I should have stepped up again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a really tumultuous time because uh, the band, I didn't feel, they felt entirely comfortable being on a major label. But I'm like, this is great. We're on the major label, and not just that, the one I used to work for. This yeah. is going to be great. Yeah. So there was an occasional these disagreements where, unsurprisingly, the arguments or the disagreements, which where I said I think the label were right, would be remembered because the case, of course, you would agree with the label you used to work with them. I'm like, but no, 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 no. But they make a good point. So there's all those little rifts, and we weren't then very good at repairing those rifts, and things would build up, um, and I was overworked. It's about surrounding yourself with good, good people. And I was reluctant about joining a management company, and I eventually did, and it didn't work out. And then when that ended, it then, again, I wasn't in a good space myself. Um, I was drinking too much, smoking too much weed, and I could see this, this, this end again coming, but I wasn't the one, I wasn't going to be the one who was going to make it. I wanted to... Not be the one that ended the rift, but not dissimilar to Atlantic, where I kind of saw these things fitting into place. I, I felt somewhat taken by the current of it, and I couldn't understand why I felt like I couldn't just take the initiative and step out when I could have. But I just was washed away by this current, and and then it ended. And then that was the beginning of some really, really challenging years of uh, really important personal growth. And but yeah, I I, I continued to manage a couple of bands. One whom I still think are one of the best bands I ever worked with, which was a band called Night Engine, who are still going now, and they've changed their name to Artificial Pleasure, who are, I think, are really unfortunate because they're around at the wrong time, because if they were around 15 years ago, they would be one of the biggest bands in the world right now. But very very 70s, early 80s, post-punk, think Associates, think Talking Heads, an incredible act. And I managed them for two years and it was not dissimilar to the Joy Formidable. We were just getting somewhere and then the band unfortunately let me go and I thought, well, I'm here again. There seems to be a pattern emerging here and it seems the only variable is me. So I found myself in a really not good situation after I uh, kind of really left the management game. Mm-hmm. And then you ended up running the label that you first started at. Yeah. How did that happen? So I, I at the time I was um I was living on friends' floors, spare rooms, dog doing a lot of dog sitting, dog and cat sitting. So a friend would go on tour, I'd look after their house and look after their dog. And I was looking after a couple of bands here, nothing that was making anyone any money. But it was always the same, a meeting here, we love this band, we're gonna sign them, this is brilliant, the breakthrough I want, no return calls for a couple of weeks and you kinda of go, Oh, this is just heartbreaking. But I was always keeping up with the meetings. And I remember this specific meeting, I didn't have enough money for the tube, so I walked three miles um, up to Candom to meet up with an old associate, a guy called Andy Farrow, who's a big metal band manager. Because I heard he was in town with one of his bands, I wanted to blag some tickets for one of his bands, and I thought, I don't want to just send an email, let's go see him, have a catch-up. And he said, I've just been at Sony, and find it really frustrating, Sony have a lot of catalogue from the bands I manage, and they're not doing anything with it. And all this catalogue was on Music for Nations, which was acquired by Sony 15 years earlier. So he goes, you should go down and speak to them. Which I did, and I had a very good first meeting. And I always remember this first meeting because it was with someone who said, um, 
uh, here's the list of all the bands uh, we have catalogued for. And I don't know any of these bands. And he handed me the bit of paper and I'm like, I grew up with these bands. I know these bands. I know some of them personally. I could do some great reissues. So I started a reissue campaign for Sony Music under the Music for Nations name. And, and, and not dissimilar to those very first work experience placements, I'm thinking I'm not, I'm not going to go. Because what started off as a, well, I can do 10 hours a week. I was like, okay, can I have a desk? And I go, really, there's really no need for you to have a desk. I'm just going to sit here. Can I have an email address? There's really no need for an email. It's a joel.death, no apostrophe. You know, and so I just didn't make myself go. And then I got more and more involved in not just reissues, but then Sony Germany would be releasing the new Amon Amarth album. Great Viking metal band. And everyone at Sony's like, I don't know what to do with this. I go, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And Monomarf have their biggest album in the UK the first time, you know, in 20-year career. And then I'd get involved in more reissues beyond Music for Nations. And then we just built built up the label. I got more hours, you know, I, I, I got my department. And it got to the point where we were going to expand into more than just a reissues label, but a label signing new acts. Um, so we 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 grew and we um, yeah we expanded. That's a, such a wonderful story. I really really love that because it's it sort of uh, you know as you began it, it it feels like you kind of fell back in love with that fascination with the industry again, having sort of been sort of almost spat out the other side. But what I found myself happening with Music for Nations is I found there was a familiar pattern with myself being in a position of what should have been great strength. But then finding myself in a position again where I was let go, which was a pattern that I'd seen myself happen at Atlantic, happen with the Joint Formidable, happen with some of the other bands I managed, and now it's happening despite the the nice almost fairy tale aspects of it coming back around after twenty years, relaunching the label and running the label that I had started at Music for Nations again after four and a half years after expanding. Uh, acquiring a, a new head of who then I worked under, I then found myself again in a position where I was let go. Mm-hmm. And I, it, and that again led to a lot of self-examination, self-reflection, self-thought, because the only variable in all those things was me. The only variable in all those positions, be it an A&R manager, be it a band manager, be it a marketing label manager for all different companies the only thing that's the same there was me so why is it i i'm now finding myself back in this position of not having the job not taking it to the next level why are they why am i being let go of why am i not leaving if i'm unhappy why am i waiting to be taken away by that tide why am i not stepping up and deciding to move on mm-hmm. and this you know only happened about 15 months ago so there's still I'm still in somewhat that period of self-reflection mm-hmm. um, but it's led to what I do now which is somewhat the shop but also my new career and exactly the new career so let's talk about that because presumably there's a relationship between that period of self-reflection and what what you're now retraining to be so tell us tell us about that so as someone who spent a large proportion of their adult life in therapy when I could afford it and when I couldn't afford it unfortunately either self-medicating or um, self-medicating with alcohol or with weed or or 
a, a prescription antidepressant which I think work for some people wonderfully and I think for other people perhaps do not work well as the talking therapies um, I've always seen the benefit of um, therapy um, and I thought when I reached 40 after 20 years in the music industry and after again finding this pattern where I have been let go what is the what is the the issue perhaps is with me because I'm the only variable what can I now do to retrain you know I'm 40 years old music has very much moved on from guitars alternative music the world of streaming is very much focused on more pop and urban and so so what is it I can do and so I decided to retrain as a psychotherapist and um and this interview is on the uh Day after I completed my well, I was going to say, how, first term. How far are you into it? Not my first term, my apologies, my first year. Mm. So I'm in my first, I've ended my first year of three, uh, four in total, my apologies. And I train, at a, I, I train with a centre that specialises in something called attachment-based psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Um, and this is still very much psychoanalysis, so in the foundations of Freud. Um but the method is very much based on the findings and work on by John Bowlby and um, Mary Ainsworth and many other modern psychoanalysts who focus very much on the attachment base and that refers to the attachment a child will form with its uh, attachment figure which more often than not is the mother but sometimes it's not and those early years that a, 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 a child will form a relationship with the attachment figure, how that then sets up much of how they will then deal with life. And um, I'm one year into my four-year course. I have learned more about myself than at any other time in my life. Uh, I'm grateful for the fact that I hit 40 and instead of some of those cliched midlife crises of buying a bike and dating someone half my age, I'm self-reflecting, I've become vegan, I'm now sober as of almost three years. Um, I got involved with activism work and just tried to lead a, I think more than a more positive life, more than any of those things, a more fulfilled life. One where I can feel more content and accept life for all those ups and downs and not feel overwhelmed which I felt the majority of my life there was never just a challenge that had to be met and overcome everything was a disaster and I think I've learned more recently that there is nothing that has happened that no one has had to face before and been able to deal with with a dignity and a, and a, and a strength that would only help them deal with that challenge again further in life so yeah, just sort of working on myself. It sounds like it's a, a very happy pairing in terms of, you know, how to fill your life full of... I thought you were going to say it sounds expensive, and I assure you it is. <laughs> oh, un- undoubtedly. Uh, well, you have to go back into therapy and uh, the course itself, but, you know... Right, it's... right, 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 interesting. Um, and so, presumably, though, the idea of starting the record shop is something that you see continuing on in tandem with that new career when you eventually complete your four years and decide to practice it is that is that the plan or, or i've it... learned to never predict what's going to happen in the okay. future <laughs> right. i've learned just to never say one thing because inevitably when i've always thought something is going to be something for much longer it, it doesn't 
I I put my targets on. Um, I will continue to do something that continues to give me this fulfilled content life that I feel at the moment. I imagine it will involve continuing and trading, selling records. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that, of course, because it's what I'm doing now. But then at the time I thought I'd be doing A&R for the rest of my life, I'd be a band manager. For, I was going to be the new Paul McGuinness, you know, I was going to be the new Steve Wabowski, I was going to be all those things. At the moment I've just learned just to go, well, I'm doing this course. One hopes it would lead to me being a fully trained psychoanalytic psychotherapist and and I can sell some records as well. But that that's how I feel at the moment. That very well may change in six months' time. Fair enough. Fair enough. Because uh, I was I was curious as to whether or not if you do go on to practice, let's put it like that instead, uh, whether your experiences of working with you know, the very sort of human side of the business, which is the you know, recording artist, performing artist, do, do you think that those experiences of seeing, as, as, as you mentioned, I think at the, at the beginning, people in the music industry are often quite troubled individuals in some respects, right? The artists themselves, you know, at least that's the the art is a reflection of that or their way of communicating it. Do, do you think that that makes for a great psychotherapist? One term that, w- 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 one phrase that we learned very early on in our training is what you need to become is a good enough therapist. As soon as you start thinking in terms of great therapist or the best therapist, you don't get what you need to become. So I just wanted to say that because yeah, okay. unlike trying to be the best A&R person, you know, these are all kind of capitalist driven mm-hmm. money making drives, you know. But when it comes to therapy, it's not about getting someone in and out as quick as possible. If it, need, if it takes them 30, 30, 40 years mm-hmm. to live a content life, that's how long you'll see someone for. But. As regards to your question, I apologise. That was a little pedantic, but I just wanted to pick up because I love that term. Because as as someone who had very little educational experience beforehand, to be told it's just about becoming a good enough therapist, it made me realise that, oh, I can do this. But if someone said it's about becoming the best therapist, I'd be like, oh, well, I've never become that. So, yeah, I apologise. But back to your initial question, I think undoubtedly the, the industry is going through a moment of reflection of understanding that the very people that are creative are also often the very people who have are dealing with trauma and music was their way of dealing with trauma now that doesn't account for everyone i'm sure there are some very healthily attached individuals who go on to be creative but there is a pattern why are we losing some of our most incredible musicians and artists to drink drugs depression and suicide why are we losing them why is it that these people find it difficult to handle many of the pressures that come with what becomes comes with being a successful artist at what point does the industry step back and go are we encouraging this or are we enabling this should we stop at what point do they go there must be an intervention. In the back of their minds, are they thinking, if there is an intervention, does it then stop the flow? Is in the back of their minds thinking, we can't afford to put them into rehab or to see them? I don't know. But I I think having my experience of being in the music industry, I think the experience of having those questions even occur to me makes me think that I can't be alone in having those questions occur to me. 
was kind of my next question, so I appreciate that. So, I, I mean, the, the music industry can be a pretty unforgiving place, certainly very competitive. And I mean, I've so far on this podcast, which is seven months old, I think, I've done two mental health episodes specifically, and certainly both revealed you know, th- these are people that have been in the industry for you know as long as you and I have, and the industry that we entered is not the industry that it is today, thankfully. At least there's a better awareness that's going on and is is there some part of you that feels like actually you can really contribute now to to the industry through this kind of retraining because there is a better awareness there is an opportunity for somebody who's given it some thought i still don't know how much i want to be in the music industry and that's in no way reflection that's not me answering your question critically. Not me saying, I don't know if I want to be in the industry because it's so bad. It, that's mm-hmm. it, it just my personal preference. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed my 20 years. I still actually do a couple of little consultancies on the side, but they are very different from what I used to do in the past. When I become a good enough psychoanalytic psychotherapist, do I then want to go back into the music industry to either offer my services or give talks or all those sort of things? Honestly, I I don't know. It's a right. So it's not that you're doing it because you think I will specialise in helping people that either are professionals in the industry from a sort of you know commercial point of view or artists. It's just a general change to involve yourself in other parts of the you know the community. Yeah, I think yeah. There's there's a there's a few things that came to mind when you spoke, but neither of them are. I want to specifically work with musicians. Mm-hmm. One of them is working with. I think a lot of confused young men whom I think are really struggling. I think there's um, there's not a lot of good, very positive role models for young men at the moment. I think rightly so, there's a lot of very positive female role models. You know, we have been in a patriarchy for, uh, a, you know, white supremacist patriarchy world for quite some time. And that does need rebalancing. But we we can't forget that there is a lot of strength that can come from being confident young man just like there's a lot of strength that can become from a you know, confident young woman and I think there's a lot of old parental habits that are um, are not in parallel with a lot of modern world thought and there's a lot of young men growing up with a lot of hearing a lot of old sayings a lot of old thoughts and old ways and old methods of dealing with the world and being confronted by a very different message and they're confused some of them then take that confusion into anger and either they uh, deliver that anger outwardly and attack or they deliver it inwardly and they get depressed I want to speak to a lot of young people who remind me of myself at that age confused because I I, I knew that when I entered into therapy it did me a lot of good and I would like to work with confused young men the other one is to be able to use my training outside of the UK into places where perhaps psychoanalytical training is not prevalent or not affordable and that kind of gets into my activism work and that is also in the UK the training centre I train at they actually have a programme for people where they can see a psychotherapist for £5 which is considerably cheaper than your usual Mm -hmm. therapy session I think that's vitally important therapy should be for all should be a way for people to have access to 
prolonged mental health redevelopment. I think that's vitally important. So those are the two aspects that immediately come to my mind. One feels that once I am trained, I'm, there might be a part of me that will rely on some of my old marketing methods and reach out to some people within the music industry. And there's a, a wonderful collective called the Music Industry Therapist Collective who specifically uh, help, not specifically, they have many clients, but they do talks within the music industry. I know them. I've, I very well may have a conversation with them. If they want a conversation with me once I'm fully trained, who knows? They might be, you know, they might not be interested. I don't know. I would never presume such a thing. Who knows? I, I just know that, especially what we're going through at the moment with, is this the first time Corona's been mentioned? How long we've we been going for? This is unbelievable. Uh, I think it is. I think, no, I think I got it in at the very beginning. Okay. Um, but yeah, but I uh, know I said COVID-19, so you can Did go with it? Corona. Okay. okay. You, you can have that. <laughs> saying COVID is is so March. I think uh, COVID nineteen. <laughs> well, I'm I'm uh, forever retro. Uh, I think uh, we are entering a phase of a lot of difficulty. We've only just entered. Mm-hmm. There's still this sort of. Well, this is all quite new, mm-hmm. difficult but new, and very soon it's going to be coming. Oh, there's going to be some very deep rooted traumatic experiences, especially when the country goes into what is likely going to be a quite a severe recession and depression there will be a lot of people who are experiencing things now that will only begin to surface in about three to four to five ten years time i want to be there to help people through that so all those things come to mind if i'm fortunate enough to pass my 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 training but i guess i'll have to sell some records in the meantime to pay for the training (laughs) (laughs) very good so this i mean this podcast i kind of originally aimed it at new entrance to the industry so i'm trying not to go with the word young there and my memory was always meeting people that spent their time talking to me and telling stories and that was kind of most of the good learning that i did as a sort of close to all of this what what would you say to somebody who's coming into the industry you know for the first time given kind of the journey that you've described during this episode what are your motives why are you doing this? Why do you want to get involved in the music industry or any industry? What are your motives? Knowing those, I think, is so important. Because at any point you feel uncomfortable, you feel, is this because this is different from my motives? The times that I have been most discombobulated are times when I was so furthest apart from my original motives. You have enough time on this earth to become rich happy or make a difference and know them none none are bad but they all have different means to get there and they can change but just know why you want to achieve something why you want to do something i wanted to work with bands and i i remember saying it so early and it's it's so embarrassing sometimes but when my parents and especially my dad was like what on earth are you listening to you can't even make out what they're saying. They are screaming. Don't get it. And I was like, I'm going to work with these bands and I'm going to make them popular. And with Funeral for Friends, I achieved that. Not so with the darkness, they're a little bit more commercial, obviously, but that was a big driving force for me. So, you know, I wanted to do something that yeah, change perceptions. But what are your motives? Keep to them. You know, for me, it was a passion for music. A passion, a real passion of wanting to understand the process. How does someone be in a band? How do they become successful how do you maintain that success because sometimes it's quite easy to be super successful very quickly but 
holding that and maintaining that into a career that's a challenge do the band want to change what are the band's motives are your motives and the band's motives the artist's motive are they in tune they're out of tune if you both want to achieve different things that could be challenging but as a manager are your motives are they important should you be reliant on your not reliant but should you be more focused on your artist's motives because surely it's their career you're managing so make sure you're in tune with those artists so all those questions i think are so vitally important for me it was about showing passion and always thinking that there was someone behind me who was likely going to do the job so always giving it my all working hard and just showing that passion i've said passion a tremendous amount of times but that's important it's a simple word but it it holds so much vitality you know it's it's that it's about connecting with that part of you that listened to music when you was at your happiest and your saddest and thinking i can play a part in creating music or work with an artist that will have that sort of impact on someone else when I was 14 and listening to Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins and thinking that there was no one in the world that understood me apart from Billy Corgan at that moment and then when I meet people now who say, goodness me, get Cape's debut album, it really changed my life or casually just and deep in conversation by a funeral for a friend, oh, look at my tattoo, that album meant the mail to me. That that shows that my, my passion meant something mm. and and... So, and you know what, if you feel that your passion is, is, is to make money, then I'm, I'm sure there's a podcast available uh, to listen to someone else. That, that's not mine, but mine was to be happy and, and, and to make a difference. And one hopes I've, I've, I've managed to do that in even a, a small way. And to con- my motive is now just to continue doing that. But I feel that I've had my time in the music industry and a fun time it was. And yeah, I learned a lot of lessons, but I... I j- I feel now that I've hit 40 and started a new career that I hope that my very, very best years are ahead of me. And with the shop, uh, do you have international clients, uh, customers, sorry? Yeah, I mean, we ship worldwide. We right. use Discogs. Um, I think uh, Royal Mail have just up their postage for vinyl to America, which is very annoying. Yes. Yeah, I, yeah I, with the shop, God, my, you know, who knows? I've not really talked much about the shop. But it does bring me a tremendous amount of joy. It brings me a tremendous amount of joy. And I feel what I enjoy the most about it is buying someone's record collection and going through it. Because you can tell so much by someone by going through their record collection. And then finding really beautiful, rare records in it. That's a nice feeling. Really, really nice feeling. Uh, And then finding new owners for these records. Mm. That's a beautiful thing. I imagine that process will play a part in my life forthcoming. And uh, every therapist I've ever met, they've always told me, make sure you have another passion because it can be very hard work just dealing with people's trauma every day, all day. So always have room for other passions. So I imagine that will be vinyl trading. I imagine it will be the shop in one guise or another. But at the moment, it's so difficult to really differentiate the two my music career, my my training, my my record collecting and my record shop, they all feel somewhat intertwined and but that's the complexities of life and what people are like, you know, you can't I'm the omelette, you know, I can't separate the egg now. Can't get the can't get the flat, you know, it's it's all in there. So uh 
There you go. I am an omelette. It's amazing. What a wonderful way to end this podcast. <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I will put some links on the on the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Joel. You've given me so much of your time. I really, really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thanks thank, for thank, coming to uh, Deepest Darkest Essex. Although I believe that you are I, from Essex. I, I so, am yeah. indeed. Yes, I am. A, a, well, you a, sound a, like you're from Essex. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a local, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. Super. Thank, thank you again. Very welcome. All right. Well, that concludes this incredible story of Joel, the man who brought the world some very important artists and their music. But also, I hope, a real insight into a side of the industry you don't often get to hear about. One route through it, as much as an insight into how it is important to keep a focused and alert mind to running a business. To my listeners, thank you for listening. Stay in touch with the show via my socials, at Alex Branson on both Twitter and Instagram. Also, a shout-out to the incredible audio assassins who have provided the music branding for the show. Link in the show notes.